Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. So thank you for joining us, um, Lucy, on Soho Radio. I thought it'd be great to talk about uh, all through your career and the things you've done and projects you've worked on, but also about the craft of music supervision as well and, and how that fits into to, to making a film and making TV. But let's start at the very beginning. Um, let's talk about your route into music. Because I believe you started, you started with Mute. Was that just before you went to university? It was. So literally, I think it was the, pretty much straight after I had finished my last A-level, I saw an ad in Time Out for receptionist at Mute Records. And I did, hadn't, didn't have a plan for my year off at that point. And so I thought, that's it. I was, you know, completely sort of train spot and music mad. And it seemed almost like a dream to be able to work at a record label it was you know and especially one that I really loved and respected the artists who assigned to it so so yes I went for my for my interview nervously and got this job as receptionist and it was it was a really amazing I mean in a way I kind of owe everything to Daniel Miller and and that entree into not only into working within the music industry but also I think I was really lucky to go in um at an independent label like that and to maybe see a lot more than I would have if I'd been receptionist at Universal Records or something like that because you were sort of involved with everyone you met everyone you know we were in the the legendary building on Harrow Road where not only did we have like the um studio on site that Daniel and the artists would use but we also had the warehouse with um muted their own distribution through the warehouse so literally the entire catalogue of cds as it was mainly then was there so i could go and kind of like take anything and listen to everything and and really then also understand like what all those different jobs meant you know everything from you know the distribution to the pr to international which is the uh, department i then kind of moved into and yeah, it was incredibly hands-on, amazing artists who again were like I got to spend a lot of time with and sort of learn about how different artists work, how the the whole sort of relationship between artists and label work. So it was a yeah, a really special one to start in, I think. Very lucky. When you started, did you have an idea or was it so because I remember when I started I didn't 
I didn't have a clue what the jobs were, really. I just wanted to to get in there and see, you know. Totally. And I didn't have any family or family friends that were really in the industry. So I, I didn't know it from that. I mean, I avidly read the enemy and melody maker and so make any sort of understanding really of of labels or maybe probably maybe a and r's were spoken about or things like that within the music press was probably how i'd picked up any idea of how a label or whatever worked so um so now i kind of went in not really knowing anything other than it was this magic part of the equation of how I as a music lover and consumer you know got to hear those you know those bands so um no it really did seem like a a mystery (laughs) slowly unsolving a mystery and then so within the I guess the international department you were doing uh, sort of overseeing press and distribution and that kind of thing yeah exactly and again because mute was was independent then and um, would have deals with other independent labels that they um, would distributed um, around the world. So I would be that person that kind of, when there was a new Depeche Mode album and the the orders would come in from around the world as to to how uh, how those um, labels were going to distribute. So. Um, for example, I'd like whether whether they needed. Like it seems so funny now to even talk about it, but what kind of master they needed, like whether they were going to make their their CDs from a you know from a DAT or from a <laughs> from other kinds of masters. And I would literally do the kind of like the pro forma invoice that we would then have those masters made to be shipped out to wherever it was, Greece, Czechoslovakia, or Czech Republic. At just by that point, but. Um, and and what yeah how how they were all sort of to support them in the kind of the international release and then exactly like then coordinating the international press for those releases so again literally the things like making sure that and again it seems so funny to talk about it now but that that pre just pre-digital in a way age of still sending out either um hard copies of press photographs that they would then I guess scan and reproduce or all the little slides that they could use for that so again I'd put you know I'd be the one like putting together the the press pack for Nick Cave's new album and there would be like the new um photographs for you know for that campaign and sending them off to all the different international offices that they would then reproduce for their local press contacts and it's all, I don't know, it seems kind of quaint now, doesn't it, to talk about it like that. But um, but yeah. in a way, it kind of made it feel very hands-on, you know, rather than just sending a, whatever, a, a digital link to download photos here. You know, you really had to think about was, and, you know, it was the one of the, the territories who, you know, who didn't seem to be supporting it properly and therefore, you know, having to follow up with them and see why they hadn't ordered their <laughs> their master. So, um, yeah, it was very hands on, very, um, but but equally nice to get that international view of things and and, you know, and that idea of artists being bigger in certain territories than others. The idea of um, how tour support worked and how tours were sort of set up around releases. Um, 
So yeah, I learned, learned so much. Then you ended up with Warner Chapel Classics. Is that right? That's Warner that, Classics, yeah. yeah. So um, it was also, so after uh, my gap year, I went to UCL, University College London, and did my degree in history of art there. And I kind of carried on doing a bit of work with Mute during that time because I was like I stayed in London so I could do bits but and and also some other sort of temping at different labels but then when I graduated and needed to get a proper job and and I was temping and I got a temp role at Warner Classics which to be honest I was not interested in at all that was not uh you know my my background or a passion at that point, the classical music. And um, I'd been lucky I'd gone to a school that had a really good music department and really interesting history, actually, because uh, Gustav Holst had been head of music there. So, it, you know, all, all the things that I could have could have led me to, to love classical, but I just didn't. I hadn't found my way in. So I started temping there. And to be honest, it was more about the team that probably kept me there uh, longer. And I was temping in the in the press department with the the PR there, and they were such a great team that I was just having fun, like I was just enjoying working with them. And and then Matthew Cosgrove, who was my boss, there, he was the head of Warner Classics in the UK at that point. I think he saw it as a sort of challenge to get me into classical music and of course even the term classical music is such a sort of well at once a misnomer and a you know and an overarching term that sort of you can I think be put off of if you know if you don't find or off by because if you don't find your way in it's um it's sort of intimidating or can seem boring or, you know, you maybe at that age, it's sort of whatever, 21, you know, and you see a sort of a room full of ageing people watching something that with, you know, with another set of ageing people playing it or, you know, all of that, which now as I'm saying it, I mean, it's like, it sounds so sort of um, stupid and, and dismissive. But I think, you you know, those things matter at that point. Anyway, so Matthew was really great about trying to find ways in and saying, well, you know, it's not all the same. It's, you know, just because you haven't heard a piece that's moved you yet doesn't mean that you will in in a thousand years of his, you know, of musical history. There's gonna, probably going to be something that that you like. And and he was right and he you know he really helped me to to open my ears to things that i probably hadn't before to put them in context i think both historically and culturally that i hadn't um to and and i was so lucky that the the kinds of artists and composers that warner classics had were extraordinary i mean you know if i think about it now in fact just as he's sort of announced his retirement but to work with daniel barenboim who is you know, without doubt, one of the most important uh, conductors of the 20th stroke 21st century, you know, it's just, and and everything he's he's done within that is is incredible. And so, so to, again, to have, I feel like if you're, if I was allowed into that world at kind of the highest level, um, 
And so I started to fall in love with it. And then I also started, particularly with that contemporary classical music, that can can seem quite off-putting. You know, it's it, it, it's strange in a way, because obviously, on the one hand, it's the most cutting edge of the classical genre, perhaps, which on the pop side, I would say that's what I was always into. You know, that's why I was happy to work at mute instead of a really kind of like a pop label is you know you were challenged by the kinds of artists that they released and but but contemporary classical just seemed even more off-putting somehow until I started making those connections really of of its use in film music and and in films and with George Ligeti with you know thinking seeing this this name that at first I couldn't even pronounce, you know, and think, you know, here he is, this sort of Hungarian, like, okay, yes, the king of of um, of 20th century contemporary classical music, but sort I mean, unknown in, in the greater world. You know, if you ask a person on the street, really, have you heard of George Ligeti? I'm pretty sure they would say no. But have you heard his music? And actually, without knowing it, they probably have, and they've probably been really moved by it, most likely in the context of Kubrick's films. And so when those connections started to me, I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Like, you know, again, it opened it up in a way that, that I'd never thought of it before. I'd never even realised, really, watching those films, A, that that was music that wasn't written for the film, that it, you know, pre-existed, that it was something that Kubrick himself had been moved by and felt, you know, moved to use in his film. And so, so all of that suddenly, again, yeah, opened a whole new world of of inspiration so um yeah it's very lucky yeah so i think you know look i guess that that's the important connection isn't it between you know connecting classical music to things that you already know and exactly. uh, and understanding it that way because because like you say classical music is it's a term like world music which is it's kind of meaningless in 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 terms of what what the music sounds like it's just such a totally an umbrella term just to sort of shove you know sweep everything under but you know there's a lot of nuance between between artists but also because there's such a huge period of time like you say yeah um and um and then you started working i guess this must have been connected in that you started working with michael nyman which I, that's I guess right that's- so he had actually put a couple of records out on warner classics that's how we first met and um, he'd put out, in particular, a, 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 talking of world music, a, a, a record called Sangam, which was um, a collaboration between him and some incredible Indian musicians. Um, and so, so I'd met him through that, and it was a time I'd been at Warner's, kind of like probably six or seven years by this point, and 
various things had gone on there in terms of being bought and sold by AOL and Edgar Brumfrey Jr. and whatever. And it seemed a bit of a, uh, yeah, it seemed the right time to leave. He asked me to manage him. And I thought that that would be interesting. I'd always loved, in fact, in particular, I mean, obviously the piano is a great school, but in particular, his collaborations with Greenaway, um, the Draftsman's Contract, still to this day in fact I saw it's back in cinemas and I thought actually I'd love to go and see it in the cinema because I think it's one of the what was an incredible film but one of the greatest scores as well so so I yeah so I left to manage Michael and that was you know fascinating to see from a in again inside a sort of a, a composer's world and how well obviously everyone works differently but how he worked and how his relationship was with um, various sort of commissioners, as it were, but but mainly on the film side that I found really interesting. And James Marsh came and asked him to score Man on Wire. And he didn't have time um, to actually score it, but he opened up his back catalogue to James and said, you can you know, basically create a new score out of my existing music. And... Um, and it worked brilliantly. I, mean, I, I don't know if you've seen Man on Wild or remember exactly the score, but it's one of those ones that it, people who really know, you know, film music inside out, and in particular Michael's or the, the music of Greenway, whatever, I think can watch Man on Wild and not even realise that they're cues from those existing films. But because they were so brilliantly chosen and um, edited and whatever for this new context it feels like a totally fresh score I mean man on why I don't think you'd really ever watch it knowing that it was existing music you'd think it was just written exactly for the picture
that was fascinating. It was seeing how the edit worked, seeing how James's director worked with the editor and with the music supervisor, John Bortwood. Um, and that's how I met John. And he was head of um, music at what was their music sales, now Wise Music, music publisher, and uh, and was Michael's publisher. And so, um, but that's how I f- he first saw how sort of a, a, that other, I guess, a, a relationship that I had not understood yet worked, which was music supervisor and director and editor and how that sort of fitted in, how it was a, a combination of both the creative in terms of suggesting which pieces might work, talking with the editor about how, you know, moving things around, and then also the business side, so actually negotiating how that um, fee was going to work to license existing music rather than it being a, a commission. Um, and that was brilliant. I suddenly sort of, again, that was a very, you know, another scales falling from the eyes moment where it's like, ah, oh, that really combines two things that interest me, um, you know, the creative that. And relationships, I love the sort of the, the building of relationships, the sort of Maybe, maybe even harks back to, you know, making mixtapes for friends, you know, in your teens where you're like, there's nothing better than someone saying that they loved a song that they'd never heard before and that you, you know, you put on that mixtape. So, um, but that idea of, yeah, introducing directors to music, suggesting things that work and dealing with the kind of the business side of it, the um, understanding how the music industry works interfacing into the film industry so all of those things again sort of that again had previously seemed mysterious and um and almost untouchable somehow um I didn't again I, I sort of felt like it was it happened by magic you know I don't I don't know <laughs> anyway so then I saw that it doesn't happen by magic it happens by many many hours of <laughs> emails and negotiations and whatever but um but yeah so these were really key key points for me so when you start it's kind of you're always waiting for that introduction to or or something to come up so so someone can explain what that does because i mean it's it's a lot easier now because you can just you know go on wikipedia and you can read okay that this is how this works but you know uh, back at the time you know when 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 you were starting when I was starting it's like you know you you needed all the information you could get you needed people to explain things you know I remember I had I had a really good um it was like a information pack from PPL I think that someone had given me and it was like a flow chart of how a license works and how I'm like and it was just one of those things of okay I understand now this is this is what these people do um but unless someone does that, you just didn't know, you know. Totally, absolutely, and um, you know, and there's still, of course, even now, of course, you come still learning things. There'll be something random that comes up, and you think, oh wow, I never come across that. And I was quite lucky because I, so then I, I moved. John Bort would ask me to join Music Sales um, and the film and TV department there, which I, I did, and and I think for many reasons. I'm lucky that I had my decade at that company, uh, not least because of the extraordinary composers and catalogue that they had and I got to work with. So Philip Glass again and Gabriel Yarrod and 
then you know signing Dustin O'Halloran and Hilda Gunadottir and this, so that that was all incredible but also because it was this and and you'll know about this because you because you know about rights now but but because it was an older catalog as well so as well as the the composers it has this very old catalog going back to you know the 20s and with those older songs all of these strange kind of rights come up like the war years which extends uh, you know the copyright for certain um pieces or the BRTs the British reversionary territories which again I you know mostly now of course people sign worldwide deals it's you know it's for a term it's for the, it's very straightforward but um but when you do come up across those and initially you're like oh my god what does that mean and it's certainly in terms of licensing it's like okay how does this all come together and I would say it would almost be quite off-putting but um but actually for me it was almost like a sort of bit of like a historical sort of I don't know like a, a study or something on a on a particular those older songs it's like it yeah okay so where am I gonna who who publishes the BRTs who's got the and it all comes together but yes that was partly because of the nature of that catalogue that I got to learn about that with copyright and rights issues in that I remember we used to have uh, a KPM we had a uh, like an excel sheet with a formula where you would put in the date it was written and then it would calculate across various territories whether it's in copyright or not and half the time you're scanning across going okay it's not there so no you can't use it it's because <laughs> um, it's different in the US to here and the, you know there's all those things totally that, exactly um, and it's funny because I was just speaking to one of my old colleagues at, at Wise and this is the last year that 12 Days of Christmas is in copyright Mm. and that was a that's a, that's one of those classic ones that everyone thinks is public domain because 12 days of christmas is very old it's a traditional song but the arrangement of five gold rings is the bit that was put in in the 30s that means that you know kept it in put it back into copyright or in copyright for probably for the first time i'm sure it was never in before and so, yeah, this year is like the last year that they're kind of going around cleaning up at Christmas, seeing what they can license before it goes out next year. But, yeah, all of those funny little quirks. I love it. Yeah. And then, you Until know, you're caught out. Yeah. <laughs> Until you forget to double check whether, whether a piece was, you know, subject to the war years and actually it's not out of copyright because you've done the kind of oh, when did the composer die plus 70 years or whatever? And it's like, yeah. no, plus, plus another 13. And <laughs> Yeah, because it's, you yeah. know, it was, did someone add anything to that? Is it the original thing? Exactly, <laughs> especially with things like hymns or whatever. It's like, is yeah. that the, is that the you know, the 1820 arrangement or has, is that some updated arrangement? <laughs> um, but, you know, that's great that you had, you got that education in that, you know, because it's, it's, it really it's hard to learn and to, you know, to sort of pick all that up with a, with a big catalogue to work with um, that then I guess, I guess they then kind of helped you start a music supervision career. Exactly. And so John, who was head of the film and TV department there and had, was already a music supervisor. So he did both. He ran the, you know, the team, but he also music supervised uh, this is England, for example, the film and other great films. Uh, and so when I came, joined and I said, you know, this is definitely part of what I want to do. 
while I'm here and um and he was open to that and really helped me and taught me a lot about it so um so it was kind of like a yeah a combination of the the right place and and luck that meant that I could to navigate my way in mm. and what what was the first thing that you you sort of worked on um when you got a credit was that the unloved it was the unloved yeah so um I came onto that by sort of a combination of of things again sort of luck in a way but essentially there would have been a really lovely um production coordinator who I'd met um Emma getting her surname but um she had been on a film that Michael Nyman had scored and so I'd met her through that and then she'd gone on to be a production coordinator on The Unloved and and kind of at that time especially in the UK music supervisor was not a big like not every film and certainly not every TV production had one it still felt a very new role um and so I think she kind of didn't know anyone else to ask, but she knew that I had a background in me, like I understood the rights and whatever. So um, so I came onto that and then I knew Samantha Morton, who obviously had written and directed it um, a bit because she dated a friend of mine. So, I, you know, I'd always really liked her. She was super cool and obviously massive respect for her her work. So... Um, so it sort of all came together like like that, um, which I, th- I guess is lots of ways in people's way into this, isn't it? Sort of, you know, a, a being in the right place at the right time, having that knowledge. You know, I couldn't have done it without having the sort of the rights knowledge and whatever and having John and Susan Tilly at, at Music Sales to kind of ask about things and help me through. So, so yeah, that was the, the first. And I have to say it, it was a lucky one to be my first one because because Samantha is so respected as an artist herself. I found that a lot of people, uh, artists, you know, musical artists, were really happy to be involved. So even though we didn't have a big budget, I mean, we really didn't have a big budget. It was very small. But um, lots of people, for example, Apex Twin, w- w- were just like, yeah love Samantha she's the best go for it sort of thing whereas I think it might have been harder if if it had been a first-time director who didn't have that um sort of established reputation already
or was it a sort of collaborative piece with with Samantha in terms of choosing? Because you've got Apex Twin, you've got people like Patrick Wolf and Gibraltar Column. Yeah, it was very much Samantha. She because she, I think as she had written it as well, she mm-hmm. had a, a very strong idea of what she wanted in there. So so yeah, creatively, I would say it was entirely Sam mm. um, on that one, and and really for me, the challenge was how do you make that happen with this tiny budget? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, she just hands that to you. This is what yeah. I want. <laughs> small amount of money <laughs> yeah um and then that leads to the arbor which comes uh not that yeah. long which is an incredible incredible film uh which is Claire bernard's debut feature yeah. uh, and filmed in such an interesting way of having so clever say the words of, of recordings of of other people um how was that to work on and and working working with her? She's amazing. I actually saw her on Friday. I bumped into her on Friday um, at Dustin O'Halloran's concert. She's she's amazing. She's just such a, a, a I think a, a truly unique mind and vision for things. Mm. Um, and that was. I mean, I, I came on. Uh, where it had already been shot and it was in the edit. So it was sort of a slightly um, different thing from the Unloved and from lots of other things that I, and I, you know, I like to come on earlier if possible, but, but with this one, it's sort of because of the nature of how it was made, that sort of technical side of it. um, It didn't actually need any music sort of on camera. So um, it was all about what worked in the edit and, um, and again, you know, again, it was sort of um, uh, Clio had a really strong idea about the m- music, and 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 through some sort of names in that made sense. They were like they really contextualised the piece in a in a period way, but also in a cultural way, I suppose, or something. You know, having the au pairs in there was like that was such. That that was very much her idea. It was such a clever use, um, and then I sort of filled slightly filled in the gaps, really suggesting things that that felt in this with the same DNA somehow, um, and and it was good. There, there aren't many songs in it. It's not huge, but um, but it was definitely. It definitely like it, it was a really nice conversation that we had about those songs and then also I guess the the other thing was that we talked a lot about the score and that was uh they hadn't well actually that the, there is a score on the unloved and that was a whole different thing because we went from the idea of having someone come in and score it to using Colleen's music existing music as score so actually funny now I think of it coming off man on wire and seeing how that had worked and then to basically doing the same um, with Colleen's music for the unloved and creating this, this new score out of it. Um, But with the Arbor, that was really lovely because I introduced Clio to um, Harry Escott and Molly Nyman and, um, 
and that really worked and she's gone on to work with Harry a lot after that but that was nice because that feels like one of my first moments where I because I love working with composers I don't not all music supervisors do or maybe maybe not all productions require music supervisors to work on that side so much but um but I think because of my background I love getting involved with that side and doing a bit of matchmaking. (laughs) 